uh, Pastor John. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And uh, Pastor Michael is my son. And I love him to death. And we're praying for you, Michael. But I want you to join me this morning, brothers and sisters, because I think, you know, this is... Uh, when I was in seminary, a seminary professor said to me one morning or one time session during class, actually said it to all of us, but I was preaching that morning. It was a preaching practicum. And he said to us, he said, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And so uh, I got word Friday that I'm going to be preaching. And so here we are, church, and I'm excited about the message, but there's always trepidation when you handle God's word. So I pray that you pray that this is handled rightly. I was uh, doing some research and some study on this, and I read this, and I thought it was interesting. Martin Luther once dreamed that the devil was listening to reports from his agents on the progress that they were making against the kingdom of God. One reported, a company of Christians were crossing the desert, and I loosed the lions on them, and all were lost. And devil replied, what good was that? Their bodies were lost, but their souls were saved. I want their souls. Another little devil reported that a company of Christians were crossing the sea by, by ship. And he said, I sent strong winds and caused the ship to go on the rocks and all were lost. And Satan again said that was nothing. Because their bodies were lost, but he wanted their souls. And a third agent gave this report saying, after years of trying... I finally managed to put the church to sleep. And hearing this, hell and Satan rejoiced. Let me ask you a question this morning, brothers and sisters, and you listening. Are you ready to meet Christ? Are your lamps full? And do you have some extra oil? This morning, I want to challenge us. I, I want each of us to take a good look at our walks, our walks of faith. Are you ready for the trumpet sound? Ready or not, He's coming. Are we prepared to give an account? Because the Bible tells us that judgment begins with the household of God. That brings me to the text for this morning, church. Matthew 25, 1-13. It's called the parable of the virgins. And I've entitled this message this morning for you who like titles, the parable of the ten virgins. Ready or not, he's coming. Hear the word of the God. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. 
afterward, the other virgins came along saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Hmm. You know, Pastor Lance read us the end of chapter 24, and I want us to realize that the location is at the Mount of Olives. And as you may remember, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, to the cross, to pay the price we could not pay. Behold, the Lamb of God. In the New Testament, the Mount of Olivet is mentioned as, as a favorite resort of Christ as He withdrew from Jerusalem. It was the start of his triumphal entry that you see in Matthew 21.1. The scene of his weeping over Jerusalem as you saw in Luke 19.37-41. His eschatological teaching, the last instruction that he gives his disciples. You're sitting in the middle of it. Matthew 24 and 25. And his ascension, church. Acts 1.9 and 12. It will be the mount of his return. As we see in Acts 1.11 and Zechariah 14.4, in this section, church, Jesus is teaching His disciples a last lesson, lesson before heading to the cross. From a theological perspective, the word that we hear about in seminary is eschatology. And this is eschatological teaching. This is about relating to death. It relates to judgment. It relates to the final destiny of the soul and of all humankind. That's eschatology. And that's what He's teaching his disciples in this moment. This parable in Matthew 25, 1-13 exhorts us to be ready if Christ delays longer than we expect. The big idea, as Brother Curtis was so fond of saying, is found in verse 18. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, you have sent us the Holy Spirit. His work is to convict, to teach, to bring remembrance, understanding the ways and the teachings of God. Oh, Father, open our eyes, open our ears, teach us and excite us afresh about our glorious God. Amen and amen. Look with me at this passage, if you will, you here and you at home. I think you'll see three sections in the story. In verses 1 through 4, you will see the character of the bridesmaids described. You have the five bridesmaids and five foolish bridesmaids and as they're described in this section. And then, if you look at verses 5 through 10, you'll see the consequence of their care and the consequence of their carelessness. You will see what happened for five of them in their care and five of them in their carelessness. And then, if you will look at verses 11 through 13, you'll see how Jesus applies the story. He will show us the consequences of their carelessness as reflected in what happens when the bridegroom comes. So church, let's dig in. First in verses 1 through 4, we're reminded that we ought to examine ourselves and consider whether we are wise or foolish. Whether we are nominal Christians, Christians in name only, or whether we are true Christians, trusting actively in our Savior and living only for Him. But this story, this parable, stresses the need to be prepared for Jesus' coming. 
Furthermore, the story reminds us that when Jesus comes, there's going to be two classes of people. There are going to be some who are prepared and some who are unprepared. Some are going to be believing in Him and some are not going to be believing in Him. Many in the church who are part of His kingdom, part superficially at least of His wedding feast, are going to be unprepared. Remember, brothers and sisters, He is speaking these words to His disciples. He is telling them that they need to be prepared. And so, as the previous parable of the faithful steward, especially applied to to church leadership, to ministers, to the elders, so this parable especially applies to all of us. All of us, believers in Christ's church. We must be prepared. This story tells us about a groom who was delayed longer than expected. And his delay, it formed the opportunity to show which bridesmaids were ready and which bridesmaids were not. Now let me, let me set for, just for a second the context because, you know, another teacher of mine once said that the three C's are so important. Context, context, context. So let's set the context of marriage Wedding practice in Jesus' time. Maybe it'll help us see this a little bit clearer. They made about as much about marriage as we seem to do today, okay? I mean, in fact, their weddings tended to go seven days. I mean, this wasn't no one-day event. This, this thing went seven days. And the custom would have been for the groom on the night that the wedding feast was to begin to go to the home of his bride. He would have... The thing is, he would have been betrothed to her. Now, betrothal is something more than engagement, okay, in their, in, their, in their setting. He would have betrothed to her for at least a year. And in that year, he would have been making preparation for the marriage. Not like, I met you on Monday and let's get married on Friday. A year for the marriage. But the custom was for him to go to her house on that night and to speak to her parents. And then they would grant her permission to go with him to the wedding feast. But as a sign of honor towards their daughter, man, I love that. As a sign of honor towards their daughter. These persons would, would traditionally keep the groom waiting. See, the groom would come to the house and he would make his argument for bringing his bride along and his parents would delay him and stall him and talk to him. And the longer they delayed the greeter, was the honor towards their daughter. See, maybe they were preparing him for something that he was going to experience in marriage. I don't know. I don't know. But in the story, apparently, this groom was delayed as long, a long time. Okay? I mean, his bride's parents honored her for a long time, and the groom is delayed. And what he would do once the parents released the bride, they would progress along with the groomsmen, and then her bridesmaid would join them, and they would parade through the, through the darkness of the streets with their torches lit, and then they would make their way to the wedding feast. What a, what a marvelous picture, isn't it? And here, this, this is the setting of the story that Jesus is telling here. To us, it seems strange. To them, it would have been very common. So this is the idea of the parable. This is real-life stuff giving a heavenly meaning, you know? But of the bridesmaids of this bride, five of them were ready for this processional, and five of them were not. Five were prepared, but five were not. Now, this story stresses the vital distinction between those who are outwardly 
visibly part of Lord Jesus' kingdom. Hmm. You see, they profess His name, however, some are nominal and some are real Christians. Some are Christians in name only. Some are Christians in profession only. And others genuinely believe in Him and are ready. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He says this, Of all these bridesmaids, all of them professed to have one object in view. But only five were truly wise. The rest were foolish. The visible church of Christ is in just the same condition. All its members are baptized in the name of Christ, but not all really hear His voice and follow Him. All are called Christians. All profess to be of the Christian faith. But not all have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts and are really not what they profess to be. See, this story is reminding us of the absolute importance of watchfulness. And I would suggest to you of what the old school church called heart religion. You know, some of us here don't know that, but some of us come from settings that would understand heart religion. I mean, that's old school. Heart religion. And, it, and if, we're, if we're going to be prepared for the day of the Lord's coming, we've got to understand those things. And the kind of watchfulness that we're talking about, church, requires self-examination. We must ask ourselves if we are truly in Christ. Are we truly trusting Him? You know, we're living in difficult times. Brother Lance already told us that. Are we truly trusting Him? Are we living in such a way that we are saying that we long for His return, that we were preparing for His return? The story of the ten virgins is a complement to the story to the faithful and unfaithful servants in the previous passage in chapter 24. It gives a picture of the predicament that the disciples are going to find themselves in at Jesus' coming if they have failed, failed to prepare for them. Because listen, church, when that day comes, the day of opportunity is past. That's the moral of the story of the ten virgins. When he comes, it's too late to get prepared. You must be prepared now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of preparation. Look with me at verses 5 through 10 as we see the care and the carelessness of these virgins displayed. Now this section teaches us that when Jesus comes, it's going to be too late to become a true Christian. That surrender must be made now. We are told in verse 5 that all the bridesmaids got sleepy. Now Matthew is not recording this to condemn them. We need to understand that he's not condemning here. They say the groom had been delayed for a long time. No fault is pressed on them being asleep. They all got sleepy. But notice, it is the groom's delay which provides the circumstance to tell which bridesmaids are faithful and which are not. Which are prepared and which are not. Which are true and which are not. That is the circumstance in which he comes and which their stamina is proven. Their perseverance is proven. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, in the case of even true believers, the, dis the delay of Christ's coming causes disappointment, weariness, and lethargy. 
and his church falls fast asleep. When she ought to be watching for her Lord. As for the foolish, whether self-deceived or hypocrites, there being no true life of God in their soul. After a while, their apparent earnestness disappears and Satan drugs them into a fatal slumber. See, the plot turns on the groom's delay in this story. Bridegrooms in those times were often late and their comings were repeatedly announced until they arrived. And what differentiates the foolish from the wise church is precisely the failure of the foolish bridesmaids to face the possibility the bridegroom may come earlier or later than they expect. We don't know. They think they're going to be able to get ready when they hear the announcement, like many of us. The wise bridesmaids ready themselves before they hear the announcement, and thus they take advantage of their day of opportunity. Which are you? So when the arrival of the groom is announced, only five of the bridesmaids have enough oil for their torches. The foolish bridesmaids' torches have enough oil on the rag to light, but immediately they begin to flicker and start to go out. They knew that they would not have enough to stay on. They wouldn't continue to burn as they went through the street. And so they said to the other bridesmaids, share some of your oil with us. Now I've got to tell you something, church. This is the first ironic thing we see in this story, by the way. And the response is no. Now you might think in the context of a wedding ceremony that there might be a little more cooperation between the bridesmaids. But in this case, I think there's perhaps a moral behind the story. Listen, saving grace is not transferable. Preparation is not transferable. And so Jesus has this ironic exchange here where the prepared versions say, no, there's not enough oil for both of us. We have prepared for this. You haven't. You go out to the dealers and you buy some. Well, you know, listen, church, it's in the middle of the night. I mean, it's hardly going to be easy to find a Dollar General there in the city where they can buy their oil. And so they're going to have to wake somebody up. And then, of course, the story tells us that while they have gone off to buy the oil to light their lamp, at that time the bridegroom comes. And he takes the other bridesmaids with him. And they go along with the rest of the wedding party. And they go to the feast. And the door is shut. i got to tell you something, church. As I was reading this, there is so much pathos in that phrase. The door is shut. You know, it reminds me of that word in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 18.31 where David is with his son and he cries, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would that it was me who would die rather than you. It's one of the many passages in the Bible where our hearts sink whenever we hear those words. The door is shut. The time had come and they were unprepared. Listen, if you hear nothing else today, now is the time to prepare for the second coming of Christ. Then we'll be too late. 
You know, I can remember sitting at the bedside of a dear saint named John Cannon while I pastored to Portland Avenue. John was a charter member of Portland Avenue Baptist Church. It was founded in 1966. It was the daughter church of Walnut Street. <clears throat> John was what I called a man of the earth. He was a simple man who worked hard with his hands. John used to climb the radio towers and the water towers in Louisville and he scraped those towers and he painted them. And he loved it. The stories he used to tell about sitting up on those perches used to make my stomach turn. Listen, John had a love for people. Especially for people who had little. He knew what it was like to have little. John had served his Lord well. And the fruit he produced was sweet and plentiful before the Lord. Every Saturday morning, I can remember John and Arnold They'd meet at the church, 5 o'clock. They'd fix biscuits, gravy, scrambled eggs. Oh my goodness, my stomach's getting... For the least of those in Portland. And here, here's the amazing thing. When I came to the church, I said, you know, we, we got to have something in the budget to cover this. John Cannon and Arnold looked at me and said, no, sir, this is going to come out of our pocket. They paid for that personally. Every Saturday morning. But enough backstory. John's health deteriorated quickly when he hit 84. But on that bed, he looked up at me and he said, Pastor, long ago, I placed my faith in Christ alone. I have believed His Word. I was baptized in obedience to His command. And I've told others about him. And he said, I don't claim to be anything special in any way. It's all because of him. And he looked at me and he said, I'm tired. And I'm sore from my journey. But he said, Pastor, I'm so excited and ready to see Jesus. I am so excited and ready to see Jesus. Jesus. He said, Pastor John, make sure you give an invitation to follow Jesus at my homecoming. John went home to be with the Lord. And he was a man who was prepared. He was prepared by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That man had faced the tent wearing out without an ounce of bitterness, without an ounce of anger, because he trusted in the Lord. He hoped in the Lord. He was ready when his day came. He'd made preparation. You see, this preparation is not transferable. Your mother cannot do it for you. Your father cannot do it for you. Your brother cannot do it for you. Your friends cannot do it for you. Your husband, your wife, your pastor, they cannot do it for you. Only you can make this preparation. Are you prepared for the day of His coming?
You know, being ready for Christ's return ultimately involves one major thing which manifests itself in several areas of our lives. If you would be ready for Christ's return, you must be born again through saving faith in Jesus Christ. I want to make this as simple as I can. I, I, I was so torn here to give all the verses and run through the Romans road. But listen, for you who may be listening, I'm going to make this as simple as I can. And if God impresses upon your heart, call one of us. Talk to one of us. Go online. You can leave messages on our website. Talk to Pastor Lance. Talk to Pastor Mark. Talk to Pastor Michael. Talk to me. But in a nutshell, here's good news. God created us to be with Him. He created us to be with Him. Pastor Lance already told us about that. Our sin separates us from God. Listen, you are not good enough. I am not good enough. I am a sinner. And you are a sinner. Our sin separates us from God. And I don't care what anybody said says to you, sin cannot be removed by good deeds. You cannot do enough good deeds to earn favor with God. A matter of fact, in Jeremiah, God says this, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? But listen, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again on the third day. Everyone who repents and believes in Christ alone has eternal life. And life with Jesus starts now. And lasts forever. It's about as simple as I can make the story. But if God is speaking to you about it. And you want more information. You contact us. You see saving faith in Jesus Christ. Will manifest itself in every aspect of our lives. The fruit of the spirit will begin to show. A desire for greater holiness. And less sinfulness will be apparent. And a, listen, and a consistent looking for His coming will mark our lives. My friend, does your life look like this? Not perfection, but a, sped, a steady, steady change in direction and attitude. One of the best passages articulating what saving grace and faith look like in a believer's life. I read this morning for, for our prayer time. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And listen, to purify for himself a people that are at his very own, eager to do what is good. And then Jesus speaks of the consequences in this story. We saw the character of the virgins in verses 1 through 4. We saw the carelessness of their, of their care, respectively, in verses 5 through 10. And now in verses 11 through 
13, you see the consequences of their behavior. See, Jesus begins to apply the story in verses 11 through 13. He tells us that the final eternal consequences of unpreparedness are going to look, what they're going to look like. And we learn again here that the consequences of a nominal profession of Christ, the consequence of a nominal profession of Christianity, listen to me, is eternal separation from God. If we profess the Lord Jesus Christ in name only, if we are Christians in name only, we face eternal separation from God. Don't fool yourselves, my friend. There is no waiting later to get it done. Because you don't know when you'll come. In the final verses, 11 through 13, the, the story begins to fade and the reality and the application begin to come to the surface. And note again the irony of the response of the Lord of the house. The bridesmaids, who have been part of the wedding party, show up late. They knock on the door, the door is shut, and the response is, I do not know you. I don't know you. <laughs> now, you may be sitting back and say, think to yourself, well, that's a bit unreasonable, isn't it? I mean, but think about it for a moment. You know, I've got a couple ladies here this morning, and, and we guys that are married have gone through this too, but let's transpose the story to the present day for just a moment. Allow me the leeway. Let's say that you have invited Chelsea and Lynn, you've invited 10 young ladies to be your bridesmaids at your wedding. And the night of the wedding, the rehearsal comes, you have all up gathered together, you have all rehearsed together, and then the wedding director says, all right, before you go, now bridesmaids, I want you here tomorrow, two hours before the wedding, with your hair done and your dresses on. And the wedding day comes, and the hour for the bridesmaids to arrive comes, and they're not there. I mean, five of them are there, but five of them are not. And you draw closer and closer to the noon hour, and finally five of the bridesmaids are not there, and the wedding director says, you know, we just got to get this wedding going. I mean, we just got to keep it on track. We got to go. Let's do it. So an hour and 15 minutes later at the reception, the five absentee bridesmaids show up. No excuses. They overslept. They forgot. How would you feel about that? How'd you feel about that? I mean, Jesus is saying that at the day of the wedding feast of all the lands, the time for preparation is past. You must have been ready beforehand or not ready at all. In this story, as they cry out, Lord, Lord! And the master of the house says, I do not know you. You remember in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said that at the end, there are going to be people who said, Lord, Lord, and what is it that Jesus is going to say to them? Depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. Let me say, let me say something to you as we work toward the end here. The word to know is filled with importance here. To say that I do not know you means not only that I do not recognize you, but it means to say that I do not acknowledge you as a part 
of my people. In 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul tells us that the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. You may fool others, but you will never fool God. In Genesis 18 and 9, we're told that the Lord knew Abraham. In Exodus 30, in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, He is the good shepherd, and He knows His own, and His own know Me. And for him to stand and say, I do not know you means you have never had a personal saving relationship with me. I do not know you. I do not recognize you as part of my people. The story you see is putting forth the consequences of nominal unprepared Christianity. Our choices here, here have eternal consequences. And we must take care that we really care about the most important things. That the Lord Jesus is truly Lord and Savior. That we truly trust in Him and that we are walking in His ways. Why? Because by no means are all who read the Bible attend and belong to a church sing songs of salvation, make a public profession of faith, or even preach in Christ's name are going to share in the blessing of Christ's return. Some are soundly converted. Religion with them is not a sham and a pretense. They believe in being prepared by faith in a Savior and live dedicated to Him and therefore to God's triune. But others are foolish. They have a form of piety, but they deny its power. And unprepared, they travel on to meet the judge. None of us, none of us may presume to be prepared. All of us must be watchful of our hearts, heart religion. We must examine ourselves to see if we are trusting in him, lest we travel and be unprepared. I like what Matthew Henry says. He says this, Sincere Christians are the wise virgins and hypocrites the foolish ones. Those are the truly wise or foolish that are so in the affairs of their souls. Many have a lamp of profession in their hands but have not in their hearts sound knowledge and settled resolution which are needed to carry them through the services and trials of this present time. Oh, how, what a word for today. Their hearts are not stored with holy dispositions by the new creating Spirit of God. Our light must shine before men in good works, but this is not, merely, this is not likely to be long done unless there is a fixed, listen to this, a fixed, active principle in the heart of faith in Christ and love to God and our brothers. Mm. Many professing Christians are used to the cliche, and I used to hear it so much. I know the Lord. I know the Lord. But let me tell you something, brothers. Let me tell you something, friends. But what matters in the end is does the Lord know you? 
Does the Lord know you? In 1 Corinthians 1, quite all of us, because that's kind of what was going on in this passage. He was talking to the kind of what was going on in this passage. He was talking to the Jews. His disciples, too. So here are six implications quickly. Number one, Christ's arrival is greatly anticipated. Meeting Christ for the first time ought to be thought of as a joyful event. One that we're, we really look forward to seeing a wedding celebration. Listen, church, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be better than a wedding. It's going to be the best celebration ever when we meet our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Now listen, I love the song. I can only imagine because honestly, I really can't fathom it, but I have tastes of it. I have pictures of it. And I think that only begins to scratch the surface of it. Mm. Let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to meet my closest friend. I can't wait to feel his embrace. I want it to happen today, right now. We ought to talk about it all the time. We ought to get pumped. We ought to get ready. There's no football game. This is meeting Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our hope, face to face. Christ's delay may be long. Just like the wedding parties take their time, they, they seem to have their own schedule, so too does Christ have His own schedule. Which it shouldn't surprise us that the last minute preparations. Fourth implication, Christ's salvation cannot be transferred. Those people who are prepared to meet Christ cannot give us what we need if we are not prepared. No one else will be able to help you. No one else can give you their oil. And you will not be able to go out quickly to find oil. You will not be able to make last-minute preparations because the time will be too late. And there is no last-minute rescue. The fifth implication is that Christ's judgment will be irrevocable. I'm sorry I'm stumbling on that word. Listen to me. This is so critical. Once he shuts the door, you cannot find another way in. You cannot buy entrance. You cannot barter your way in. You cannot appeal to God. His only words to you will be, depart from me. I don't even know you. He is not going to change his mind. And that takes us to number six. Christ's kingdom is for the prepared. Christ's kingdom is only open to those who get themselves ready. Now listen to me carefully. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply respond to an invitation. All the bridesmaids had done that. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who make a confession. All the bridesmaids would have said that they were a part of the bridal party. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who merely express some affection. 
Oh, I love the Lord. All the bridesmaids would have had positive sentiments toward the groom. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who are prepared and remain prepared until he comes. And the only way to be ready for Jesus is to be ready always. Listen, I've walked a few years. I'm not the oldest guy in the world. But the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a raging bonfire that slowly runs out of heat and eventually pitters out to nothing. It's a constant flame that burns for Christ's glory. It is not a lukewarm love for Christ. Listen to me, my friend. It is a burning hot desire to give anything, even your life, for the sake of Christ. It is not a life that looks outwardly Christian. It is a transformed heart that truly pleases God who knows all things. It is a Christian who not only starts the race, but finishes stronger than when they started. It is a believer who matures and grows and serves and sacrifices and fights temptation. It is not a person who is always looking for the easy way through life. It's a sojourner who is passing through this evil world. It is not a permanent resident who loves his current surroundings and wants to sit around and enjoy them. A genuine Christian is not someone who just passes time without serious, and listen to me, I mean serious thought and action regarding the coming kingdom of Jesus. I like what one commentator said. He said a genuine Christian invests their life in preparations for eternity. Is that you? Are you ready for Christ to come? Are you prepared to meet Him? You know, I talk to people all the time who claim to be Christians who have no assurance of salvation because they are only outwardly righteous. But on the inside, they know that they're just as sinful as ever. And yet they go on fooling themselves thinking around with the church, thinking that everything is okay when it's not. Now that's serious, but let me tell you something. There's still good news. There's still time. The door is still open. But it could be today. We don't know. I got to tell you though, that thought breaks my heart. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Test yourselves. To see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. We don't sit back and say, let go and let God. As helpful as that is to some folks, no, God challenges us as members of the house. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And my question to you is, will you do that today? to make sure you pass the test. I want to end with some famous quotes, and I love these. You know, for my, for my staunch brothers and sisters here that would rather have some scriptures, please forbear me. But I love these. Listen to this. By failing to prepare, 
you are preparing to fail. Benjamin Franklin said that. Listen to this next one. Everyone has a will to win, but very few the will to prepare to win. Sounds like a football coach, doesn't it? Vince Lombardi. This last one, this is more current. I like this one. I really like this one. Listen to this one. The separation is in the preparation. I like that. The separation is in the preparation. Who do you think said that? You're going to love this. Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson. I knew I liked something about that man. And listen, these guys are talking about insignificantly small matters, like establishing a nation and winning, winning sports games. But listen, meeting Jesus is way more important than that. Therefore, preparation for that day is more important. In this lifetime is the only thing that matters. Listen, I admire all that's going on and, and it should continue to go on. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If we never have an opportunity to sit down with these brothers and sisters and share the good news of Christ and the knowledge of who God is, as Michael preached in his sermon last week, without the knowledge of God, we don't understand the true reality of justice. If we never get there, we're failing Jesus himself, I think, said it best in Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Listen, church. Listen, friend. Ready or not, he's coming. But let me say this to you. The door is open. The bridegroom is open is still calling. Will you come? Will you come?